This week on the show, we're looking at modernizing the OpenBSD console. We talk a bit about the OS roles and how they have changed. The FreeBSD cluster with Pacemaker and Chorusync is a tutorial we'll look at too. Uh, wine in a 32-bit sandbox on 64-bit on NetBSD is interesting. We help you find packages which provides a file in OpenBSD and more things in this week's episode of BSD. Now, episode 368, Changing OS Roles, recorded for the 9th of September 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in. We have some interesting headlines, as always, so we should get right to it. Uh, we found that modernizing the OpenBSD console would be something you might be interested in. And uh, the uh, Frederick Campus article on the campus.net, it's not campus, but campus.net, uh, writes that at the beginning were text mode consoles. Traditionally, BSD and Linux on i386 and AMD64 used text mode consoles, which by default provided 25 rows of 80 columns, the AT times 25 mode. This mode uses an 18 times 16 font stored in the VGA BIOS, which can be slightly different across vendors. OpenBSD uses the WSCONS console framework inherited from NetBSD. Cathode ray monitors, oh, cathode ray tube monitors, of course, TRT. Uh, those allow to set the resolution you wanted. So on bigger monitors, an 80 by 25 console in text mode was fairly large, but not blurry. Frame buffer consoles allow taking advantage of larger monitor sizes to fit more columns and rows. With the switch to LCD monitors, liquid crystal display, also in part driven by the decreasing cost of laptops, the fixed size panels became a problem as the text mode resolution needed to be stretched, leading to distortion and blurriness. One thing people might find uh, or did not realize is the huge discrepancy between text mode and frame buffer consoles regarding the amount of data you have to write to cover the whole screen. In text mode, we only need to write two bytes per character, one for the ASCII code and another for the attributes. So in 80 times 25 text mode, we only need to write 80 times 25 times times two bytes of data, which is 4,000 bytes for the people who don't do the arithmetic too quickly. 4,000 bytes and the VGA card itself takes care of plotting characters to the screen. In frame buffer, however, to fill a 4K UHD 1, which is 3840 by 2160 in uh, 32 bits per pixel mode, we need to send 3,840 3, <laughs> times 2,160 times 4 bytes of data, which is, big number here, let me see where's the start. It's about 32 megabytes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Might not make it too easy. Yeah. It's 33 megabytes, a lot more than the original uh, from the smaller consoles. So on frame buffer consoles, OpenBSD uses the RASPOPS, RASOPS, yeah, RASOPS, raster op operations imported from NetBSD in 2001. And while they had been used for a while on platforms without VGA cards, frame buffer consoles were only enabled in i386 on AMD64 in 2013 for Intel DRM and Radeon DRM. So in recent years, 
RASOPS itself in the frame buffer drivers have seen some improvements. So for uh, examples some general ones, uh, the EFIFB got added and enabled for the EFI frame buffer drivers. They implemented counterclockwise rotation and scroll back. Then there were the performance rated improvements. So uh, RI, WR only, dot write only during early boot. And uh, what else? Introduce RASOPS, W, write, write only, do cursor. And remap EFI frame buffer early to use write combining and other performance optimizations. Then there were the console font improvements. So they added the spleen 5 times 8 targeted at small OLED displays, as well as 8 times 16, 12 by 24, 16 times 32, and 32 times 64 spleens. And WS fonts got spleens enabled by default as well. There's a separate article linked in the uh, document we linked from our show notes to an article about spleen if you know one, want to know what this is. And uh, it's well worth reading the rest of this article because it tells you a lot more about how the frame buffer and WS cons works. Yeah, you, you skipped over one set, which kind of made sense, but because of who wrote the code, I thought it was worth mentioning. Oh, of course. The fast conditional console scrolling and the optimized character rendering for 32-bit uh, mode were done by John Carmack, you know, who invented the, or came up with the video game Doom and so on, and has... Uh, been doing a bit of a binge of OpenBSD work because he finds it to be a very relaxing environment to work in. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was in June 2020. So it seems like he hasn't lost touch with OpenBSD and still likes no, it. So there's uh, code coming. He's got that's a bunch of tweets about it recently too. Oh, excellent. So that's certainly something we look forward to because you can kind of guess that John Carmack knows what he's doing in the programming environment. Yes. Especially doing things like trying to <laughs> optimize how fast you can draw pixels on a screen. <laughs> oh yes, games optimize for that a lot. And so, yeah, you can look forward to more coming this way. Very nice. Uh, then we have the OS roles have changed articles or article. Yeah, so this is just a, a short post uh, from our friend Ruben, but he says he came to a, a slightly overdue realization last night that he now uses his Mac for work, uh, specifically for business software, and then uses DOS and older versions of Windows and so on for nostalgia purposes. Uses Linux for any kind of simulation or world building or playing video games, basically. And then uses FreeBSD for everything else. All of this is quite a shift from before, where you would imagine Windows was for gaming, Mac was for creating, and FreeBSD was for server stuff. Mm. But yeah, so rather than being used for creative tools, now the Mac is what he uses for business applications. And then, you know, the er older versions of DOS and Windows uh, he uses were endlessly frustrating, but were before the only way to do a lot of those business applications or maybe uh, play video games. But now it's not really the case. And yes, in the past, Linux and games didn't really go together, but now it's becoming more and more common. Anyway, he says, I can still remember in the early 2000s bringing my iBook G3 into a corporate office from schoolwork experience and all the ensuing discussion about what it was and whether it could actually work on the corporate land. And now, you know, Macs are a pretty common set. Uh, he does mention, they were even more confused when I booted NetBSD on my Mac. <laughs> he says, though I do wonder sometimes with just a slight tweak to history how things might have been different. You know, if another dimension somewhere, I'm using the latest BOS-powered PowerPC laptop 
and a shiny new Palm smartphone. Mm. Both of these represent the pinnacle of UI design uh, in the late 90s and still in the 2020s have yet to be surpassed. Now, people can call me an Apple fanboy, but I drop it all in a second for some of that old gear. <laughs> you know, I've had some other thoughts about the changing roles of what an OS is as well. As we've started to see more and more, especially with Mac and the, the mobile OSs like Android and so on, the OS has started to become more of a platform that provides services to the applications where, you know, we've started to see things like notifications and uh, preference storing and so on being kind of abstracted away from something each application does into something that the OS manages once. And in some of those cases, maybe, you know, it's, it's not really the OS it's just some bundled software or, you know, it's part of the, the UI, you know, whatever QT stack you're using for the graphical application or whatever, but it's starting to become interesting to think about what people use the OS for. Uh, and we're seeing this trend towards thing like electron apps and so on, where, you know, it doesn't matter what OS you're running, you're, everything's running in this web browser. And if the OS provides what the web browser needs, then it doesn't, the application doesn't care what OS it is. And I, there's both pros and cons to moving to this world where the OS doesn't matter so much, but at the same time, we can't forget about the OS. It's an important bit of the software. And, you know, if you're building uh, on top of stuff that's not good, then you're going to run into problems. But at the same time, you know, we kind of get this idea of layering where the application shouldn't have to care about which operating system is running on. Yeah, a lot of things are happening behind the scenes to make that so seamless and make the OS just look the same or feel the same as any other platform. It's, yeah, it's a different uh, world and the operating systems are sometimes a little bit more behind the scenes rather than I'm working with the OS and not on the OS. You know what I mean? Like directly rather than being just... Well, a, yes, uh, like... A lot of times as a user, what I really want is for the OS to get out of my way and let me just use the applications I want to use. Mm. And, you know, the OS kind of fades into the background. But at the same time, you know, we can't stop developing, you know, operating systems are not a solved problem at this point, right? There's still a lot of work to do. Oh, yes. But that work does maybe have to keep in mind that the point in the end is to enable the applications not to just develop the OS for the sake of the OS. Yeah, make it useful so that people have a reason to use it or power it on in the first place. Okay, it's time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we found an article for the cluster folks because FreeBSD cluster with Pacemaker and CoroSync uh, found a way in this episode. Yep, uh, so Vermeerdain says here, you know, I always missed having proper cluster software on FreeBSD systems. Recently, I got to run several Pacemaker slash CoroSync based clusters on some Linux systems. And I thought how doing something similar on uh, as a high availability solution on FreeBSD would be really cool. Uh, and I was shocked to find that there's ports for both of them already available. Uh, so in this article, I will check out how well Pacemaker and CoroSync as a cluster work on FreeBSD. Uh, he says, first, there are many definitions of what a cluster is. One that I like the most is that a cluster is a system that is still redundant after losing one of its nodes. Therefore, it's still a cluster. This means that you would need at least three nodes in a minimum for a cluster by that definition, as opposed to just, you know, active passive failover or whatever. The two node clusters are quite problematic because their biggest exposure is split brain, where 
both nodes are still up, but not talking to each other, and they each think they're in charge, and then they go off and basically have two different versions of what is authoritative. This is why often in the two-node cluster, additional devices or systems are added to make sure that split frame does not happen. For example, one can add a third node without any resources or services just as a witness or, you know, a voter, so that there's a deciding vote for which uh, node is in charge. Uh, another way is to add a shared disk resource that will serve the same purpose and is often a raw volume with you know some kind of iSCSI or uh, SCSI persistent reservation mechanism used to make sure that it can only be accessed by one node at a time. Anyway, uh, looking at his lab, he set up three nodes with FreeBSD 12.1. These three happen to be running in VirtualBox, so that was easy enough. And he has you know IP addresses 111, 112, and 113, and got those set up. So he has his basic rc.conf to define the IP addresses, enable SSH, and so on. Then he can look at packages. He switches to the latest package set rather than the quarterly set and installs uh, CoroSync 2, Pacemaker 2, and CRMSH. He says there are install messages that come with both Pacemaker and CoroSync that we'll need to address. So Pacemaker says for correct operation, the maximum socket buffer size must be tuned uh, by performance. So in this example, they change the uh, maximum socket buffer size to about 18 megabytes, or I think it's actually 16 megabytes plus the overhead that the socket buffer size is the amount of memory, not the amount of socket buffer. And so there's this kind of expansion factor. Um, and so anyway, it's allowing up to 16 megabytes of data to be in flight. Then uh, CoralSync uh, has a similar message. And so setting that sysctl on all three nodes. Then he uh, uses package info command to check what binaries were actually installed as part of Pacemaker in CoroSync and the CRMSH tool. So now he needs to initialize the cluster. Uh, so he looks at his host file, which he's used to define the IP address to hostname mapping for all three nodes. So then he uses the CoroSync keygen command to generate a key. Then it's time to write the config file. So again, he uses package info to find the example config and uses that as the basis of a new config file. Defines, you know, what the subnet mask is going to be, uh, which multicast port to use, which uh, cipher and hash to use, and what transport and all those things. And he defines his node list uh, and he defines the quorum. So depending on how many nodes you have, you have to define how many nodes have to agree for the, the cluster to be considered whole. So in this case, with three nodes, you want a quorum of two so that one node by itself can't go off and corrupt things. Uh, now we need to propagate that CoroSync key across the whole cluster. So they're actually using a, the C-Sync tool, uh, but R-Sync could work as well, whichever way you prefer. So they check all of that. Then enable CoroSync and Pacemaker via rc.conf on all the machines uh, and make sure they get started. So once CoroSync and Pacemaker are running, you can run the CRM status tool and you will be able to see the state of the cluster. And once it's discovered all the nodes and had a selection, it's good to go. And Vermadon has always the screenshot tour associated with his posts, so we can actually see what's happening and how the status looks. Yeah, and actually some of the example output, which makes it much easier to look, uh, compare what you got and, and see what's there. Great. I have never used both uh, software before, so sounds interesting. No, I think I've I've heard of one of them at some point, but Pacemaker. I've never actually tried to use it. Yeah, now you can. The tutorial is in our show notes. I also discovered, uh, talks about how to define custom resources uh, and how to make different services and how to actually you know, use the cluster software to do things. But yeah, uh, check out the post uh, and it has all of the details. 
Okay, great. Next, we have something a bit more obscure, but nevertheless interesting. We have Wine in a 32-bit sandbox on 64-bit NetBSD. So the first thing that we have is a disclaimer in the post saying, this is completely mad science and mostly a learning experience. Okay, we'll go for that. So uh, they recently updated the Wine package to a recent stable version and now want to play some old Windows games on NetBSD. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Uh, it's current year, insert current year here. Uh, my machine runs AMD64 and Wine needs to be built with 32-bit libraries to run a lot of older Windows applications. Mainline package source, quote unquote, can't do strange multi-arch Wine builds yet. So a 32-bit sandbox seems like a reasonable way to use 32-bit Wine on AMD64 without resorting to running real, real Windows in NVMM. Uh, we'll see uh, if this was a viable alternative to re-reviewing the multi-arch support in package source WIP. We're using Sandbox CTL, which is a neat tool to quickly shelling into a different NetBSD user space. Maybe you also don't trust the Windows applications, you're running too much, especially the old ones. Uh, Sandbox CTL creates a uh, root uh, based on a fresh system image and truths on NetBSD is fairly bomb-proof. Okay. So they learned a little bit more about how LX11 works while trying this too. So that was nice. So you install, of course, Sandbox CTL first, which you package in, and then uh, enable some sysctls for ah, hwaudio0.multiuser equals one, as well as uh, vm.userva0 underscore disabled. So that you, ah, this will allow Wine to map the null page to do the cursor, uh, <laughs> which it needs to do for cursed reasons, it says. Okay, we'll go for that. Then it's time to configure the Sandbox CTL. Uh, you download the i386 NetBSD sets into a directory and then create a new config file for Sandbox Cuddle or CTL in your uh, wine.conf and uh, point that to your NetBSD release sets. Then create the Sandbox and the wine user. So it's just... Uh, separate user add command for that and set a home directory slash home slash wine. Then you do a bit of kernel config abuse because wine needs to abuse the system. It needs to run Windows applications. So there's plenty of abuse there, I guess. Uh, you'll need to reconfigure NetBSD to allow this abuse because by default NetBSD is fairly strict. Okay. Running NetBSD 10 or current, then you don't need to do this. Running NetBSD 9.x, make sure your kernel has the necessary security features disabled to run wine you'll need fresh NetBSD 9 sources, okay? Uh, these options matter, so this is user underscore LDT and no options SVS. Then you build a new kernel, shouldn't take too long, ha ha ha, depends on your machine speed. Um, back up uh, the old kernel, copy the new one into place and reboot. And now you can start making X11 play nicely with the sandbox. So we need to allow X11 applications inside the sandbox to communicate with the X server and there's a couple of attempts. So first X11 over TCP, that uh, seems okay. The second one is uh, slash temp on the same file system as the sandbox. Ooh, oh yeah, I see where this might be problematic. Um, so they gave up the TCP try and removed the tempfs mount in etcfs tab so that slash temp could reside on the same file system as the sandbox. And they don't like that as well, they write. So there's a couple of security things that could go wrong but it's just, it's mad science, remember? So they quickly discovered that OpenGL, uh, the direct rendering from a 32-bit sandbox, isn't all that viable. 
in the sense that DLX gears immediately sec faults, regardless of whether the connection to X11 is over TCP or Unix sockets. They honestly wonder why, but debugging this further is probably too much pain for today. So they uh, resort to libgl always in an export as an uh, environment variable. And then it's fairly straightforward to use your sandbox a little further down in the article. We find that you can run sandbox CTL dash C wine and then shell, uh, which gives you a shell into your sandbox. And then you can install the wine package and run uh, that as your user account that you created, the wine user in this case. And then you can basically, ah, <laughs> they, they copied the DRM free version of Red Faction from gog.com. And that should be a good uh, test case. And run then inside the sandbox 32-bit executable. And lo and behold, here you are running your game in Wine. Cool. So they conclude with that the entire concept of running Windows applications on Unix is somewhat cursed and requires some security compromises to make easy. If you care about keeping your Unix system hardened, maybe keep Windows on another machine and don't let it near an Ethernet cable. Uh, this kind of sandbox is really nice for development, testing, and isolating applications, but comes with strong asterisk when it comes to graphics. It should probably work on integrating the... Oh, they should probably work on integrating the wine build patches instead of wasting any more time on this. And they actually much prefer running DRM-free games using Compat underscore Linux when they can. It's much less janky. Yeah, um, in the previous ports tree, they've done the evil magic. Uh, so there's actually a port called i3d6-wine instead of just wine uh, that lets you get a 32-bit version of wine on your AMD64 machine. So uh, you don't need a separate jail or a sandbox or anything. You can just do it. Uh, and there's some stuff in the package message there about, I think the what is it, the LDT thing is on by default, but the size is limited. If you run into error message suggesting that you can configure your kernel, there's a sysctl you can change instead. Uh, and then that one requires a reboot first, but uh, should allow you to run those uh, without having to recompile the kernel or anything. Oh, that's convenient. Uh, and there's also the i3d6-wine-devel, which is the development version, which has uh, an even newer version of wine that uh, might solve problems if you're trying to run slightly newer stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but what is in ports now is the, uh, the stable version of wine uh, that you would get if you drive and load from their website. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. uh, then we have news from OpenBSD. Find package which provides a file in OpenBSD. Yeah, uh, so there's a handy, very handy tool in OpenBSD called package locate DB, which provides the command package locate. Uh, if you need to find a file or binary program and you don't know which package contains it, you can use package locate. So if you just do package locate star slash bin slash, you know, exif tool, uh, it will tell you which of the packages provides it. And their example here, it's actually a Perl script, but you can also say, you know, what provides libc++ and they show that the base 6.7 package provides it, or there's uh, some related files with similar names in Qt4 and Qt5 and so on. So that's cool. That's, uh, there's a similar thing for FreeBSD, right? Called uh, package provides. Package provides. Yeah. And they have another example here where if you're looking for the command line tool convert, which is part of image magic, but image magic has a weird name and spelling. Uh, so being able to just say, what provides convert uh, would be helpful. Oh, yeah. Ah, and they also mentioned, if you have the opposite problem, you have a file on your system and you would like to know which package put it there, then on NetBSD, you can use package underscore info, uh, capital E, and then the file, and it will tell you 
which package installed that file. I think there's something similar you could do with package info or package query on, on FreeBSD. I just don't know it off the top of my head. I'm sure it's in the main page though. So then you can find the culprit who uh, gave you so little disk space left. <laughs> well, no there might be other reasons why you're wondering where that file came from. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah good to know. And the way to find out. All right, in the Beastie Bits that we have this week, we have OpenBSD for one and a half years, Confessions of a Linux Heretic. That's a YouTube video for you. Yep. Uh, basically, it's a, a former Linux user talking about their journey and how uh, they, what they like and what they don't like about OpenBSD as a daily driver after having used it for 18 months now. Ah, okay. I like people keeping an open mind and looking left and right what's also uh, in the Unix space or in the operating system space. Yes, and, and we often see this kind of post after somebody's used it for a couple of weeks or a month, um, but it's very interesting to see a follow-up after a significant amount of time where you've had time to maybe work out uh, some of the kinks and uh, get frustrated with all, any little niggles that have been going on for a while, but then also maybe have had to go through the upgrade process, which isn't something you'd think about when you're first switching to an OS and so on. So yes, it's good to kind of have all of those different uh, perspectives. Yep. Uh, then keeping with OpenBSD for a bit, we have a 6.8 beta has been tagged Ooh, in CVS. Yeah, because they have their schedule released. It normally comes out in October, right? On the day, yeah, that they said they will be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so they're cutting the beta and asking people to start testing the snapshots uh, so they can fix any problems before they do their final release. Yep. More testing, less bugs. And uh, there is also news from Dragonfly BSD. Uh, Hammer 2 and Growth is the uh, uh, Dragonfly BSD Digest article called. Hammer 2 now has GrowFS directive. So there's room in the partition. You can expand your Hammer 2 volume to fit. And there's related uh, changes to GPT and disk label, uh, which have now similar options. F-disk as well. Good. Growing is, is always better than shrinking. <laughs> well, and especially as more and more people start using virtual machines, uh, you often start with a pre-built image and then make it bigger. Uh, so having a file system that can do that quickly is nice. That's one of the really, really nice things about ZFS is it takes basically zero time to start having access to that extra space. It doesn't have to actually go and be set up in, in any tables or anything. Uh, ZFS literally just needs to be like, okay, there's space there, and I will, I note that the the maximum number of meta slabs is now this. It's good to go. Mm. Oh yeah, very useful. Uh, then the last uh, quick story we have for you is uh, about a vulnerability. So there was uh, a set of vulnerability announcements that came out a little while ago, and you know people have had time to patch and so on. But if you've ever wondered more about how they find these problems and how these different problems work, uh, the Zero Day Initiative has a write-up from the researcher who found the particular one in send message named MoonBSD, uh, and he talks about how it works. In particular, the problem description from the vulnerability here, right? I'll just read the, the background and the problem description. So the background is FreeBSD provides the Compat32 subsystem, which is used to allow running 32-bit FreeBSD binaries on a 64-bit platform. System calls whose parameters require translation are handled by that Compat32 system, because 32-bit kernel of FreeBSD would expect the sizes of a bunch of those values in the syscalls to be 32-bit numbers, uh, and on 
on the 64-bit system, they would be 64-bit. Uh, and so they have to be translated back and forth. Because uh, it also means when the system returns information like the size of the file, it has to manage to squish that into the smaller variable. Anyway, then there are the send message and receive message uh, calls, which are used to transmit or receive control messages whose contents are evaluated by the kernel. Such messages have different alignment constraints on 32-bit systems than on 64-bit systems, and thus must be translated if you're using them via that compat32 subsystem. You know, if you're calling from a 32-bit program, the system has to then take that message and realign it to make it work on a 64-bit kernel so that you can send the message. Anyway, when handling a 32-bit send message call, this uh, compat32 subsystem copies the control message to be transmitted, if any, into kernel memory and adjusts the alignment of those control message headers. This code which performs this work contains a time of check, time of use vulnerability, um, which I'll explain in a second. Uh, which allows a malicious user space program to modify the control message headers after they've been validated by the kernel. So a time of check, time of use vulnerability is basically something in the code where we look at a file and maybe check its permissions or something about it. You know, is this file small enough to be allowed to be loaded into memory or whatever? So we do some check and then later we come back and use it based on that check, right? So if the file was too big, when we checked it, we would throw an error and not worry about it. But in the time between when we checked it and when we use it, if somebody can change those numbers, the size of the file or the contents of the file, then you can end up with one of these talk to vulnerabilities where it was fine when I checked it, but somebody modified it after that. And then when I went to go use it, it was now a problem. So they have a little video here showing how it works. But basically, what it did was it had a 90% chance that you could trigger the race condition. And basically, you create a whole bunch of these message header structures, which are all initially valid, and you spawn a thread that calls send message in a loop with that block. Uh, then you spawn another thread that increases the value of the length field in that message header and then reverts back to the correct value in a loop. Once done, we just wait a few seconds for the two threads keep racing each other, and very quickly the kernel will panic. So we're off to a good start, because suddenly the length we told it isn't actually correct anymore. Yep, and exploits happen. So uh, we're interested in knowing when the heap overflow is triggered, so that we know uh, when to stop the two racing threads. That is, we don't want to keep the threads running for too long, and therefore overflow the kernel memory in a too extreme manner that would result in a panic. Rather, we would prefer to stop immediately after the first successful overflow to increase the reliability of the exploit and limit the damage to the kernel and the rest of the memory. So to accomplish this, they use a little trick here that they defined. The idea consists of leveraging the behavior of the copy in function, which is a, a function in the kernel that copies data from user space into the kernel. To protect against useLand giving an unmapped page or just garbage in general, copy in gracefully handles page faults in the kernel and safely returns the error eFault when an unmapped page is encountered during the copy. eFault in turn gets triggered by the system call, or gets returned to the user space by the system call. In the case of our heap overflow, we can just put an unmapped page exactly where we want the copy to end. So copy in will then copy everything up to that unmapped page, then fault, and that will then return eFault, which causes send message to return eFault, and we can then stop. Uh, and so it goes on to explain how the vulnerability works, and how to chain a bunch of things together in order to use this to actually escalate privilege. In the end, they create a UDP server and client pair, 
then we create a userland shellcode that will execute some exploit or whatever. Using the UDB client, we allocate many mbuffs, which is the management unit for the network code in FreeBSD. So it's how the data that you're trying to send over the network gets sent down to the network card. Uh, and we use the server to create holes in the kernel heap allocation map. And we race the two threads against one another to trigger a heap overflow in the send message, uh, which allows us to overwrite part of an mbuff that we're not supposed to get to control. In that mbuff we overflow into, we write both the uh, external free pointer and the data for some kind of ROP or JOP uh, chain. We detect successful overflow and use the UDP server to free the mbus we allocated, which causes that external free pointer to be called and starts the chain into our exploit. As our chain executes, it disables the kernel and CPU protections and jumps into user space shellcode, and now the attacker can do whatever they want. So they have an example proof of concept, which will take you from an unprivileged user to being root and running a shell, and it tends to work about 90% of the time. Oh yeah, that's a lot. Chances so are. according to the FreeBSD security team, if you're using i386 or any other 32-bit platform, you're not actually vulnerable because there won't, it won't go through this translation layer. And for these systems that are vulnerable, you just need to upgrade to the latest stable or release uh, or security branch dated after the correction date and reboot and your system is, you know, the problem is solved. And they mentioned that the FreeBSD team managed to get the build and release done quickly, and that was very nice work. Oh yes, so it's the user's perspective now to make those uh, patches apply on their systems and sometimes reboot depending on the uh, vulnerability. But yeah, great work and uh, great write-up also with pictures and descriptions so that uh, it's more illustrative how these things could happen and uh, the time as Alan explained from the, from the initial check and the change that happened afterwards. Yeah, basically this one worked by the kernel would check that the size was correct. And then somehow after that, but before the kernel went to use it, the other thread would change the size. And then when the kernel went to use it, it would use that bad size and end up overriding a chunk of memory it shouldn't have. Okay. Now it should be a good point to, when Alan mentions, oh, overrode something that it shouldn't have, then you might have, well, oh, because I have backups, I cannot be hurt by these things. What? Yes. You. <laughs> so you should start taking backups if you're not already. I assume you already are, but uh, are they secure backups? Um, so head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now uh, and get signed up for Tarsnap. There are a few basic things to consider. First, Tarsnap is secure and efficient and it's an online backup service, but every backup service claims to be secure, but Tarsnap, you can actually check. First, Encryption. Your data will only be accessible using your personal keys that only you have. Uh, we can't access your data even if we want to. And importantly, if you lose the key, even you can't access the data. So don't lose the key. Second big point, you can actually check. The source code for the client is available and it's what you compile to, to run the source code. You know, there are binaries provided by the package systems for your operating system like BSD and Linux and there's ones for Mac and Windows and so on. But the point is, you can inspect the source code and compile it yourself so you know it's doing exactly what it says it is. Oh, yes. Which other online backup clients are doing that? And like we said, it's efficient. It uses deduplication and compression. And it's not just block-based deduplication. It's actually uh, this kind of smart deduplication that for each file finds the right chunk size, uh, dynamic chunk size to find uh, natural not barriers, but natural places in the file where 
deduplication will make sense. Uh, you know, it was Colin's thesis or whatever when he went to Oxford to get a doctorate in computer science was on this deduplication. So it's really cool and allows you to get the most out of it. And, you know, someone in the FreeBSD project had their laptop die this morning and uh, they're very glad that they back their stuff up to Tarsnap so that they could get their work back in the meantime. You know, especially if you think about something like source code, when you're working on the source code, there's going to be a lot of changes when you're pulling down, you know, the latest version of FreeBSD and merging it into your work in progress. But in general, those changes are a lot of small pieces all over the place, or you might have multiple copies of the source code or whatever, and it's all text, so it's gonna compress really well. And, you know, there's big blocks like the license at the top of the files that'll dedupe. And so Tarsnap will do a really good job of squishing all that down the it's not just to save money on storage though it's about uploading less to the internet because that's usually going to be your bottleneck for any backup to the internet is that how much data can you actually send to the cloud uh in each day and is, you know hopefully is more than how much changes on your hard drive each day but the deduplication and the compression help make sure that you'll be able to back everything up often right that's the idea is that you can send all your changes all the time and that means that when you go to restore, there's less time between when you last backed up and when you're restoring. And if it's just important files like the source code for that you're working on or your tax documents and so on, then between the deduplication and the compression, uh, it means it won't cost very much at all. At some point when, you know, those couple of gigabytes of your most important data, if you don't have backups of them, someday you're going to be very sorry you didn't spend the $2 a month to have a backup of that important data. So head over to tarstamp.com and start using it. It's super easy. If you've ever used tar, you can use tarsnap. If you need more help, there's a book, Tarsnap Mastery, that'll walk you through the best ways to make use of it. Yep, clients available for all the operating systems out there, BSD, Linux, macOS, Sequin, and the Windows subsystem. All right, time now to dive into the feedback and questions section, uh, which we will hope to continue to do if you send us questions. So if you have anything about the show, you want to know something from us that we hopefully can help you with, then send us to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then chances are in a future episode, we will cover your question. Uh, this week starts with Rob with seven years. So, ah, that sounds exciting. Uh, Rob writes, hi, Benedict, Alan and JT, congrats on your upcoming seven-year reunion of BSD Now. Yes, seven years already. Wow. Uh, he watched the live feed today, and you should get a quick interview with Chris Moore, seven-year-old, and see what he says about computers. Oh, yes. <laughs> that would be great. Um, looks like since there was only the latest 119 episodes of BSD Now, it says it was 2018 when the first episode aired. I thought you might want to fix that. Okay, we'll uh, look into it. Uh, episode archive 119 episodes of BSD Now since the first episode, which aired on March 29th, 2018. Keep up the good work. Thank you, we will. And there's a PS. Uh, I was planning on helping out uh, of Saturday for the bug busting office hours. Ah, yes, we have one coming up. I did not know what I could do to prepare to help with documentation because I'm a sysadmin and only use bash to create scripts and do uh, not do real programming. Oh, that's fine. Well, uh, when we went through the um, the last bug busting thing a couple of months ago, there were a bunch of things that were just here's you know a suggested edit for a shell script or a new shell script for a, a periodic script to back up the layout of your zpool so that you can 
always compare to what it looked like before and so on. Uh, so there's lots of stuff that only requires a sysadmin with some shell scripting. And, you know, another one of the things that I was talking to someone else about to, this morning even, uh, about convincing them to come to this uh, bug busting office hours thing was oftentimes we just need the opinion of someone else, like someone who's just a sysadmin. Often as developers, we know too much about how FreeBSD works. And it's really helpful to have some people that are a sysadmin who has a bunch of experience with BSD and who we can ask, which way would you expect this to work? Or which is which way one of these options will be make more sense to you or will just make your life easier. So we need everyone of every skill level. And whether it's just helping out with some documentation uh, or if it's improving some shell scripts or if it's just providing your insight into the problem or, you know, how somebody's complaining about this esoteric thing. I've never used it. How many people here have? Uh, if there are a couple people that have, that means that it's probably more important than otherwise. And having those people show up can mean uh, it gets more attention. You know, in the end, the decisions in FreeBSD are made by those who show up. Exactly. Yeah. The next one is on the 19th of September. So just a few weeks away, not even that, uh, by the time this episode comes out. Uh, check out the FreeBSD website for more details, when it's happening, how it's happening, and how you can help out. Okay, so thank you for this uh, contribution. And we're really glad that we did make it to seven years, right? Yep. And uh, hopefully <laughs> up to another seven years. What do you think? <laughs> we'll see. Be surprised. Um, then we have Kurt uh, with a microserver question. Uh, Kurt writes, Hi, Benedict and Alan. I have an old HP microserver that I've been running FreeNAS 11X on for a while. Uh, it's not a critical backup, just something to play around with on my eventual journey to adopting FreeBSD. We're a Mac household now, and I'm running ZFS as my primary user file system under Mojave 10.14. Okay, that can yeah, be a good start. Um, I've always had a policy of encrypting old disks, so I use uh, either FileVault, uh, the Mac boot drives, for example, or ZFS native encryption or on the home directory and all small portable replication target drives connected via USB 3. The FreeNAS box was different, however. The 11.x release of FreeNAS don't support ZFS native encryption, so I selected the Galley encryption option for my FreeNAS disks that turned out to have some pretty serious performance implications because the little HP box has an AMD Turion processor that is roughly equivalent to an Intel Atom and lacks AES instructions uh, to keep up encryption. Well, uh, in that case, ZFS native encryption would have run into the same performance problems. But anyway. Yeah, it, yeah, it uses the CPU uh, extensions, and if they are not there, then it's, yeah, it is what it is. So it sits down in the basement of a Powerline Ethernet adapter that passes data to sub-USB 2 speeds, and can't even keep up with that. Huh. I recently read that TrueNAS Core is coming out soon, beta is now out, and it includes the updated ZFS support for native encryption. I'm thinking that it could be a godsend in my situation. Uh, it should be possible to send the encrypted datasets directly from my computer in raw form and have the HP just accept them without decrypting them, right? Uh, since the HP... Uh, yes, so if you're using ZFS native encryption on the source system and the dataset is encrypted, then you can do a raw send to the other side and the other side doesn't have the key, so can't decrypt it. Mm, so it's just storage, yeah. Uh, since, since the HP won't be decrypting data as it comes in it, should have all its processing power available for handling the network and shoving the bits onto the disks. Then, I, uh, if I have some unusual need to get the data on the HP in unencrypted form, I would just load the keys on the HP, 
And now TrueNAS Core ZFS will decrypt on the fly with the usual attending performance lag. Of course, it will require a complete wipe of the HP box and its current disks, but that is okay since it's only backup data. Um, I think you'd be able to import the pool into a TrueNAS Core. Like, uh, I don't know if there'll be an upgrade from FreeNAS to TrueNAS Core, although I assume so, but an older pool from a FreeNAS can be imported in TrueNAS Core and then upgraded to support encryption. You would re you probably replace the data, that the backups that are on it. So it might make sense to just start from scratch, but you don't have to. Although you can't overwrite an unencrypted data set with an encrypted version of itself, you would have to, you know, put it in a different data set or, you know, retransmit the data or whatever. Mm, yep. So what is most fuzzy for me in this situation is key management. So I wonder if you could point out some workflows and pitfalls around managing the keys in this situation. So right now, my only key management task on my main computer and the replication targets is to simply issue the command ZFS mount dash lowercase l and tank, well, the name of the pool. Uh, also, I wonder if TrueNAS is going to be happy to have a data set that is going to be in the encrypted, uh, it's going to be, yeah, the encrypted and not mounted state most of the time. Uh, so when you load, uh, when you create an encrypted data set on ZFS, you select how you want to provide the key that can be a key file or it can be a password you type in or whatever uh you will just need to provide that key in the same way you provide it on the the primary system on the backup system to be able to access the data so as with all encryption you need to not lose that key whether it's a password you have to remember or a key file uh, that you need to back up although you know if in this case you're backing up to HP and you're just not decrypting it because you don't want to waste the CPU time and so on, you can back up the key as well that way. But, you know, often the point of the encrypted using encrypted replication with ZFS is that the machine that ends up with the encrypted backup doesn't have the key and can't decrypt it. So it means you need to back up the key some other way, which might be just a matter of printing it and laminating it or something. Yep. So keep the key separate from the actual encrypted backup. Uh, as far as I know, TrueNAS won't care that you have a data set that's not mounted. Uh, yeah, okay. So another topic, do you think you, Alan, will be eventually updating your advanced ZFS book to include information on native encryption and possibly other advances? Ooh, <laughs> uh, I already have two copies of the books. I initially bought the Kindle editions, but then found that I used them so much that I wanted paper copies. So I guess I'm ready for a third copy of the advanced book if you should update it. I hear Michael Lucas groan somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there will be a need to update it uh, at some point, you know, especially with if D-RAID comes out. Uh, that's a big concept that needs to be explaining. And there's a bunch of other stuff that has come up since and Z-Standard and all that. Uh, so yes, there will be a second edition someday. I can't tell you exactly when. Though. Yeah, it also needs documenting on the FreeBSD handbook as well. So that's uh, some work coming down. Um, thanks for all the interesting BSD info, Kurt writes. I enjoyed hearing you, Alan, in this case, discuss ZFS on the Ask Noah podcast too. Cool. Thanks for that feedback. And yeah, hopefully your backups will always be encrypted and never be necessary to uh, put in place when your system crashes. Hopefully that never happens. So uh, last but not least is another Rob uh, with interviews. I think it's another Rob. Um, so that one writes, enjoyed listening to the interview with Warner Losh. You're not the only one. We got a lot of good feedback. Uh, I would be interested in hearing an interview with Rick Macklem and Carl Evans as well. Yes. Um, I've never actually met Rick Macklem, but yes, that would be very interesting. 
and Kyle Evans, I think we might just be able to arm twist in doing that. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll try to hunt them down. We will try on both of those because I would uh, be interested in having both of those as well. Yeah. Thank you for the suggestion. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, that should pretty much, yeah, it does uh, wrap up our yep. episode for this week. Uh, thank you for listening either live on Twitch or a little later when this recording is published. Uh, and keep up this, uh, yeah, listening. Keep us uh, informed about your feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv and anything else you would like to mention. We are also uh, tweeting our episodes when they come out. So you will always get the info when that happens. 